something outside. What is that? Talking old timers with Thomas, the one and only Steenberg. This is your co host, Julie Wrench. I want to welcome you all to a, the 37th episode of our show. Can't believe it's been that many, but we do have Thomas in the studio. Welcome aboard, Thomas. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Young, young at heart, but old in body. <laughs> I don't think you're that old, Thomas. I. And I, when no. I say old, I mean the OL version, not the old version. I would never call you old. Well, I'm feeling rather young today, <laughs> considering who our guest is. <laughs> yeah, we do have quite the guest tonight, and um, it's somebody that is a big influence on not only myself, but many people that I know um, who look up looks up to him. And I refer to him as the godfather of cryptozoology. And there's a lot of people who would know by know him by his name. It is Lauren Coleman, our guest tonight. Lauren, how are you? I'm fine, and it's great being here with you, too. Thank you so much. We are so happy to have you on the show. We're really stoked. We just had June Tisbury on on our last show who is uh, the curator of the the, um, the second museum that you have. But we're going to go ahead and get into that in a little bit. But what I wanted to do, Lauren, is since we just have an hour and there's so much to talk about, I wanted to start with how in the world did you get involved in the whole cryptozoology world? Well, it was uh, remarkable, but what I was doing, this was in the late 50s, I was reading a lot of uh, natural history exploration books, uh, doing my own, you know, had a, um, a zoo in my backyard, doing a little explorations. And then on March 20th, a uh, Friday night, there was a series uh, of science fiction movies on my local television channel. I was living in Decatur, Illinois at the time. And they showed a movie called Half Human. Uh, by The director was Ashiru Hondu. And it was about the Yeti or abominable snowmen in the mountains of uh, Asia. And I was just fascinated by it. I just couldn't understand why I hadn't heard about these before, these creatures. And so I went to school the next week. Uh, I also saw that movie Saturday morning, but because it repeated, 
and I asked my teachers, I said, what is this about the Yetis? What is, you know, a bondable snowman? And they said three things to me. They don't exist. Get back to your homework. <laughs> Leave me alone. Leave me alone. So, I, so, of course, I got very interested in finding out what I was uh, not being told. And uh, I started uh being very sensitive to newspaper articles that were coming out throughout Illinois about little hairy creatures and giant snakes and uh, mystery cats and all of these things. And and my father was a professional city firefighter. Uh, I had an uncle that was with the Illinois Bureau of Investigation and some other relatives that were police officers. And so I hooked up in that network of game wardens and rangers and police officers and started going out investigating some of these creature reports uh, with law enforcement and game wardens and and just got deeper and deeper into it. And uh, Bigfoot, of course, was the first thing was uh, quite possible to investigate in Illinois and in southern Illinois. And then one thing led to another, Loch Ness Monster and uh, mystery cats, as I said, and and so I ended up deciding to go to um, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale because I found um, in Ivan T. Sanderson's book that there were reports of little red men or little hairy apes uh, in Southern Illinois, and I wanted to investigate those uh, directly, and so I started doing that, and and I was, you know, the usual extremely good student that didn't study, and I started hitchhiking all over America and skipping my classes. Uh, I was uh, majored in anthropology and minored in zoology and, and did do that, got those degrees before I went on to a, a master's in psychiatric social work on the East Coast. But, it, you know, one, day, one thing led to another, and uh, you start... Well, what I wanted to do, do I wanted to share the information that I got. Uh, so I started writing articles, and then once you write articles, I wrote books and uh, got on TV documentaries. And I mean, here I am now. It was uh, that was a long time ago. It was what 62 years now, and uh, mm. it's just uh, seems like yesterday. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Um... You've been doing this longer than I've been alive, so you know there is that. <laughs> it just blows my mind. Um, it's amazing how your your journey started out with somebody telling you they don't exist. It was almost like a challenge to you. It's like, really, okay. Yeah, well, it was definitely an intellectual challenge because I hate it when people say something like that, in which they're just completely trying to squash anybody's interest and and uh, without any backup, you know. You, it's very oh. hard to prove a negative. Right. And I know that you have written 40 books or so there, and so we want to make sure we touch on that. Uh, you've been a very busy person over the years. Um, I know a lot of your books are available in Am- through Amazon. Um you know, is there other, some other places people could look up to get some of your books? Um, well, in the era when there were actually bookstores, 
they were usually carried. And, uh, and now they're in a lot of uh, Bigfoot museums and museum shops and and uh, gift stores. But online, uh, most of my books mm-hmm. that are still in print, probably about 20 or so, are still in print. Uh, there's people are still able to get those. But uh, you know, if they come to uh, Cliff Brackman's uh, store out on the west coast or even the Mothman Museum sometimes carries some of my books and and of course the Arm Museum carries the books but uh, people also in this new era uh, there's a lot of uh, Kindle and online and mm-hmm. ebooks so it's just it seems like people are uh, as often happens to me you know people come and meet me in a museum or at a conference that I'm speaking at and they come up to me and they say Oh, when I was a kid, you know, just a a little kid, I read one of your books. <laughs> I know I've been in the field for for a long time, so uh, certainly my works are out there. Amazing, Thomas. I'm gonna let you go ahead and, and jump right in here. Just out of curiosity, Lauren, are any of your books like totally out of print now? There are some of my books, uh, some of the small regional ones, uh, the publishers just let them go. Some mm-hmm. of them, uh, like uh, Monsters of Massachusetts or uh, Monsters of New Jersey, those kinds of books, they come into print for two or three years and then they disappear as in print. And sometimes the publisher uh, keeps them as e-books. But uh, there's, uh, I mean, even my Cryptozoology A to Z that Simon Schuster published in um, 1999. That's still in print. Of course, one of my first books in 1978, Creatures of the Outer Edge, that went out of print, but then Anomalous Books came out with a reprint and a revised edition of it in 2007. But, uh, you know, it is amazing. Some of the books just really have a staying power like my Bigfoot book uh, Bigfoot the true story of apes in America uh, uh-huh. cons- considering my, my first two correspondents were really Ivan T. Sanderson and then uh, John Green I wrote when I was uh, a baby you know a little teenager and he he got back in touch with me and started writing me and, and then I started corresponding with John Green and uh, as well as John Keel and and others uh, down through the years. I remember that first year after I got involved, in, by 1962, I had 400 correspondents around the country, and it just, uh, every day was like Christmas because I'd go to my mailbox wow. and there was a letter. Nowadays, it's uh, email, you know, whether email from uh, Vietnam or uh, South Carolina, you know, it's just comes in all the time. Dang, that's yeah, crazy. I finally remember those old days of snail mail when you wrote a question, <laughs> waited two weeks to get an answer. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, right. A lot of the, a lot of what I did back then was I, I was a paper boy, but I mm-hmm. also knew where all of the out-of-town papers were sold, and I'd go and I'd pick up maybe like five or six issues of the Chicago Daily News or the Chicago Tribune and find the little articles that were um, 
you know, the little fillers that would have cryptozoology news, and I'd cut out the article, date it, and then mail it off to Ivan Sanderson or Bernard Heuvelmans, and then wait for their response and the articles they would exchange uh, with me. And that was uh, doubly exciting, you know, snail mail with articles in it was really uh, uh, quite exciting. Now, when you started, Lauren, and got interested in cryptology in the first place, it was basically the Yeti and the Sasquatch, and, and of course the term Bigfoot came along in the United States. Was that how, was that really the first cryptid you were interested in? Were you interested in other things before that? Well, uh, as I'm often asked, you know, what's your favorite cryptid? And uh, I'm interested in all of them, but... Uh, I will always be interested in the abominable snowmen and the abominable snow people because it was my first love uh, mm-hmm. from that movie. And then quickly I mm-hmm. learned, uh, I learned, uh, I was looking in the newspapers and talking and interviewing people, and uh, Mystery Cats in Illinois uh, really piqued my interest because they were unknown, they weren't supposed to be in state. Uh, you know, mountain lions and black panthers. So I got very interested in those and then the giant snake reports. Uh, Bigfoot was always uh, up there with Yeti because, of course, uh, Americans, North Americans in general, were uh, really at the the front of the line to investigate uh, Bigfoot even more than Yeti. Yeti was, uh, you know, the Japanese and British and People were going on expeditions, and it wasn't um, wasn't something something you could easily do. Uh, but the big Bigfoot um, were very uh, very much part of my interest. But what I started noticing was that there were probably ten to a hundred sightings of mystery cats for every one Bigfoot incident. So oh. I started noticing that. People were almost taking for granted that these black panthers or um, things that look like African lions in the Midwest, uh, which could not exist, but pe- because they were part of regular part of uh, zoology, zoological uh, parks and gardens, people thought that they were just another normal animal. But in fact, they were just as mysterious as, as a Bigfoot around the corner. I read your book, Tom Slick and the Search for the Yeti, I believe it came out in 1999. Fascinating book. Fascinating book. Researched. Now, did you ever get a chance to talk to Tom Slick before he passed away, or was that uh, when you were still rather young? Yeah, he he actually died in 62. Yeah. Uh, So when I got very intrigued that nobody was – I mean, I I tried to find out about Tom Slick because he was sort of the secret money man. And I started finding there was one sentence in one book and another book. There was two sentences. And so I started gathering the material, and I actually flew down to Texas and flew down to uh, Georgia and interviewed all of his relatives, his his son Charles, his son Tom Slick Jr., which really was Tom Slick the third, um, his daughter, his uh, cousins, as well as people involved with the uh, 
the research institutes that he'd set up. And then I started uh, tracking down Tom Page, who was very similar to Tom Slick. He was another wealthy um, millionaire living in Ohio that came in to do the funding of Peter Byrne and others after Tom Slick died. Uh, So one of the things about the Tom Slick books that I really liked is I it's the most scholarly book that I did because I uh, so many people questioned uh, the the resources and the citations and stuff. So I made it heavily footnoted uh, so that nobody could uh, challenge the sources of my information. Now, after Tom Slick died, there was a lot of complaints that much of his material collected during the Pacific Northwest Expedition, the family and, and his associates buried, or, or at least allegedly buried. Were you able to determine if that was true, or, or did you find out whatever happened to any of this material? I was able to actually dig up most of it. One of the parts of what I found was that I went up, went out to Peter Burns and actually ended up living with Peter for three days. And um, even though, you know, people don't want to hear it, Peter had a lot of material and they were totally disorganized. They were uh, kept in um, in uh, trash bins, three or four oh. trash bins, um, you know, un unfiled, uh, uncategorized. And what I did for Peter for three days, he gave me a room to sleep in and and a table to work on, and I took all of the material out of those and I sorted them uh, into chronologically uh, letters from Tom Slick, letters from Peter Mm -hmm. to Tom Slick, and from other people on the expeditions uh, I was able to review photographs. He allowed me to take some copies of photographs, uh, a few copies of paper material, uh, and uh, then I, I did publish the book. And then uh, the year after that, Peter went to my publisher and and used my publisher to publish a book on elephants. But then I also flew down to. Um, the Slick family in the different parts of the South that they lived in, and they opened up their scrapbooks that they had. There wasn't a lot of um, secret material or uh, too deeply personal, but there certainly uh, there were articles that I'd never seen before and um, papers from Tom Slick to his uh, secret consultants and so I was able to record those uh, and I put almost all I put everything that I could find in the book in you know lists and appendices and uh, footnotes uh, so that people would have that forever wow now, I I imagine when you looked at a lot of the Peter Burns material like that you found uh, printed evidence of the hostility he encountered from the late John Green and the late Rain to Hinden when he came over here to take over the running of the Pacific Northwest Expedition. Do you have any comment to make on that? <laughs> you put me right in the middle of it there, Thomas. Uh, well, I 
I was very good friends with John Green. I was very good friends with uh, Renee DeHinden. I knew that they had falling out and they had, you know, they sort of played patty cake and made up a little bit. Peter yeah. Byrne, uh, I always kept Peter Byrne on the right side of me. And then I got a lot of reports from people after he started being hostile to me uh, and li- actually lying about me. Uh, that he did that regularly. Um, he he would um, get donors and get money and uh, you know different things like that. And I think you can even see in that uh, the little um, legal trouble that he got in to a few years ago. Uh-huh. He seemed uh-huh. to he seemed to have some problem with uh, records and money and and different things like that. So. Uh, I actually did not see that much in the letters that Peter Byrne kept about that uh, post-American expedition material that the uh, post-Tom Flick information. It was much more, uh, Peter seemed skeptical from the very beginning about different eyewitnesses, different uh, people that would present hair samples. And there was, uh, and I, I tended to agree with Peter there, that uh, Tom Slick seemed somewhat gullible. Uh, mm-hmm. And he he certainly wanted to believe so much of the material that he was giving lots of money away, including to Peter, but also to uh, other people in um you know, in California and British Columbia, uh, as well as the uh, the giant salamander search that he was doing too. But Tom Slick uh, used his money all around the world. Uh, you know, rang Pindek, um, rhinos that he would chase after in Southeast Asia. I mean, he he had a lot of interest in cryptozoology, and he wanted to. Uh, use his money uh, that way and in some ways we were all very happy uh, i mean i uh, i saw it going on and i read about it and i uh, i wish i would have known it uh, i i got some of the 1959 articles from the new york journal and it was quite clear that he was a uh, uh, very much an adventurer who everybody thought at the time that the yeti was going to be discovered tomorrow and so there was uh-huh. a lot of excitement a lot of excitement in the air. Wow. A lot then, a lot of high hopes. There were definitely a lot of high hopes, mm-hmm. yes. Now and some people kind of may not like, understand that Tom Slick how he passed away. And if you want to go ahead and, and let our listeners know what what did happen to old Tom? Well, it is Somewhat shrouded in mystery, he he was doing a lot of uh, intelligence work. That let me just be open about that, and I write about this in the book. Is uh, he uh, was connected to the CIA as far as getting men uh, into um, Tibet. Uh, mm. Peter Byrne was connected to that too. Uh, maybe they were trying very much to overthrow the Chinese government that was trying to get deeper into Tibet. That that all happened before Tom Slick uh, brought his operation to the United States and to Canada. And then 
uh, there seemed to be quite a bit of history there where uh, Tom Slick was being used to run guns to Cuba. And some of the uh, Bay of Pigs information was involved there, too. So what happened that we know about is that Tom Slick was supposedly on a trip to uh, Canada uh, for a board of directors meeting. Uh, he, In some reports, he was on a fishing trip. On some reports, he was, uh, you know, on a holiday. On, in some reports, he was... Uh, uh, up there having an affair with some woman as his oh. wife and kids were back at home in uh, San Antonio. But uh, whatever happened uh, or whatever he was doing, uh, at the end he died in a plane crash. And that's what mm-hmm. we know. And the plane went down, I, I believe it was in Montana. Correct. And, and the bodies. There's two reports. One, the bodies were completely burned. And in another Uh report that they found him strapped in a seat uh, and uh, they recovered his body. So depending upon what report you want to read, um, it was still a a very mysterious end to a Um, mysterious man. Yeah, yeah, Peter, yeah, Peter Byrne recently republished his 1975 book, and he had put add-ons in, and he mentions that Tom Slick and, and there was a young man piloting the plane for him. They had basically decided to, there, there was a storm front in front of them. This is according to Peter Byrne, a storm front in front of them, and instead of turning back like they normally would have done, they decided to risk it, and they went through and one of the wings got torn off one once on one side of the aircraft and that wing was found 3 miles away from the rest of the crash so that's that's pretty well been discussed what's happened what happened yeah 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 well peter i mean um tom slick uh went down in a crash in south america once and had to survive and got out of that so yeah. he was uh, he he lived a very risky life and uh Certainly seems like he would go out in flames. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting. Uh, Peter certainly lived through a lot, and he's what ninety six or something now. He's maybe he's the last of the old guard still alive, besides you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm only seventy five, so I'm a youngster. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Excellent. But I'm 62 and I'm just close behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of course, it's, you know, you, I feel like I'm 12 or 18 sometimes, so it, uh, those ages don't mean anything anymore. Mm-mm. Nope. Nope. Okay, Lauren, would you like to tell us about how you got the idea of starting out, starting out your museum in Portland? Mm-hmm. Well, um as I said earlier, I, I you know lots of field expeditions, lots of going out in the field, and uh, you know then I decide to share the information. I write articles for years and years, and and I keep up to date in the email. And I've written, wrote a blog for a long time in the during the 2000s, and and then what I started noticing was uh, all of these files 
and uh, collections were all being thrown away. Um, uh, for example, I don't know if you know Scott Norman. He was a, a Mokilio Mbembe um, expedition uh, guy. He went to six expeditions to Africa looking for the dinosaur-like creatures. And all of a sudden, uh, one day, I got a call. And it was from Scott's uh, brother, and he says, Perhaps you didn't know, but Scott died last night. Uh, Scott was 43. And I mm. said, uh, oh, my God, you know. And he said, would you mind writing his obituary? Because I was getting kind of known for uh, – I was getting tired of criminals and politicians and rock stars getting obituaries written, and nobody was writing all the obituaries of the cryptozoologists and the Bigfooters. And I so I started doing those probably in the 90s. So Scott's brother asked me to write the obituary, and I, I wrote it. And uh, because I wrote it, it got picked up by newspapers and his local paper. And and then um, a couple of days later, I got a call from his mother, and she said that was wonderful what you did. That was excellent. Thank you so much for remembering Scott and. All of that, and she said, and by the way, don't worry about any of his files. We all threw him in the dumpster, so nobody has to worry about him. And I just was horrified. I was just horrified because Scott had dedicated his life to cryptozoology, appeared on a couple TV shows. He'd written, you know, articles about his expeditions, and and here everything was thrown away. And so I just... uh, got more motivated to put together, you know, a museum. I mean, I'd been collecting uh, by then, you know, the end of the 50 years of artifacts and pieces of evidence and foot casts, pieces of wood that had been bitten by uh, cryptids and black panthers and stuff. So uh, I decided to, uh, in 2003, to start the museum to really... Uh, not so much that I wanted everybody else's collection. I wanted to set up a model so that people knew that cryptozoology, Bigfoot information, Mothman, whatever, was important enough to be in a museum and to collect so that if people, before they die, they think about their collection, donating it to a university or to their local museum or to their favorite Bigfoot or cryptozoology museum across the world and to really uh, think forward as opposed to just uh, thinking they're going to live forever and that uh, they're going to, uh, uh, somebody else will take care of their collection after they're gone, to uh, really have some foresight about that. So it's worked very well uh, for, for me. People have been very supportive uh, we've been a nonprofit for several years, and people donate or donate it someplace else. And, and actually, I've been able to see in the last, it's now been almost 20 years, a real explosion of, of Bigfoot museums um, mm-hmm. and other other local cryptids like uh, you know, Lake Monster Museums and Mothman and Smalligaster, some of the, the weirdest creatures you'd ever hear about. 
as well as uh, I was able to in 1999 to finally go visit uh, uh, Loch Ness at Drumadocket and and be able to walk between two museums that were a block away from each other, and I I saw the what could be done, uh, you know, with a good museum. So it's been uh, very interesting, and uh, I'm hoping someday to. Even though the museum in Portland is very large, I mean it's uh, two stories and six or seven rooms and a hallway and and different things like that. The one in Bangor, uh, which is 200 uh, miles away, I mean you know up up in further up in Maine, it's a uh, one large room and a library and archives. Uh, but it at least it uh, gives us some some way to really sink our our roots in this state, and then, uh, you know, because of the conferences and the staff, able to go across the country talking about cryptozoology and Bigfoot and Yeti and different things like that. And of course, uh, Jean, who was on your show last time, she's uh, very motivated to look into the mystery cats and had her own sighting up here of a spotted. long-tailed uh, mountain lion-like mystery creature, that a mystery cat, that uh, is uh, certainly propelling her in that direction. And I understand you now have the traveling exhibit I helped Chris Murphy put together that was traveling all through the Pacific Northwest for the last 10 years is now in your museum in Portland. Yes, yes. We uh, took his... Uh, his uh, his exposition, his exhibition, I should say, and displays and integrated into ours uh, with his final wishes to have it in one installation in one place. Uh, and he showed me the history, and it looks like it's been 15 years on the road. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were able to fill up some gaps that he missed out on, and uh, his uh, collection nicely filled in other gaps of ours so uh we're very happy with that uh, uh that material and uh, really uh, his name's all over the that end of the museum because uh, we s- certainly thank him for that and there's a, a lot of other people that have uh, donated we just got a whole huge donation from a uh, a man who uh Oric Chris Oric uh who died suddenly uh, last year, and his family donated uh, lots of material. Like uh, he he had uh, Stellar's sea cow material, dodos, uh, you know, different material that is the end of it. Uh, the animals of discovery and the uh, thylacine. So uh, you know, we we really do appreciate when people decide to give their whole collection as well as one or two items that uh, has been very important to them because we uh, we certainly uh, appreciate it and uh, with respect uh, display it. Are there plans to expand the, the new edition in uh, in Maine, Bangor? Well, part of what I'm, uh, what we did up here is uh, down in Portland we have to uh, we rent, of course, because we had to look at the spaces that were available, and we're in a, uh, a distillery, a 
brewery entertainment area. So we get a lot of <clears throat> traffic. <clears throat> it's a, a concert site, too. Uh, and so we we can't really give that up, and we have to keep paying rent down there. But one of the things we wanted to do up in Bangor is we actually bought a property so we don't have to pay rent. And we know that by being here, we're looking around for bigger properties to uh, really expand and and have a whole museum site that can uh, uh, take both of the – I mean, we've got so much stuff, <laughs> so much mm-hmm. material, so many artifacts that we have to rotate the material in and out of uh, displays just to keep it fresh and also to, to show off what we've got. And so the eventual plan is to expand Bangor, although we do have to uh, acknowledge that uh, the traffic for Bangor, it's its a city of about 60,000, whereas Portland is a quarter of a million people uh, wow. in, a, yeah. in a metropolitan area that is uh, much more touristy and much more, um, you know, has a lot more visitors down there, and so we don't want to give that up. I, I mean, I, in some ways, uh, I would like to see branches of the International Cryptozoology Museum pop up around the country, but uh, until we get some kind of long-term endowment, we're going to just be happy uh, keeping alive in these two places. Right. That's it's good to have a backup plan in case you know the landlord suddenly decides to triple the rent on you one day. Oh yeah, yeah, that is a that is always a concern. Mm-hmm. And also, the pandemic was very scary. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. From a thousand people a day to you know having fifty people come through, that was uh, you know thank goodness that there was some uh, some bridge grant money that we could get, but uh, all of that money's gone to, uh, unfortunately, to scammers, I think, now, because we're hearing bad stories. Right. Um, I was wondering on your opinion on the Sasquatch mystery, Lauren. Do you believe that the creature is a a zoological mystery, or are you into the paranormal explanation? (laughs) Well, first of all, I have to... um, confront you with the use of the word belief. Uh, As I tell newspaper reporters or radio reporters all the time, belief is the the providence of religion. Logic mystery or is it a paranormal mystery? Uh, I think that uh, like Heuvelman's, like Sanderson, towards, uh, towards the middle of his career, I have an anthropological and zoological framework. I'm very uh, biological. I think those are the answers I'm looking for. Those are the uh, constructs that I hear in some of the um, the eyewitness accounts. Obviously, uh, because I'm a, a follower of Charles Fort, uh, I understand Fortean phenomena and unexplained phenomena. But I think that what we really have to be careful about is all of this, I I really see it as fuzziness 
that has crept into the field, uh, you know, sort of the skinwalker phenomena, the woo-woo phenomena, where people are mm-hmm. uh, people are getting so frustrated with the search and with the the seeking that they start. Uh, and I won't mention any names, but I think you know the authors, and they they jump on the fourth dimensional. They jump on the the ESP ESP um, telepathy uh, or somebody coming in and out of portals, and I think that's uh, Ivan Sanderson once told me: never explain one unknown with another unknown, and that's been real watchword for me, or watch watch phrase for me, because I I think that too many people too often just get frustrated, throw up their arms, and say. Well, this isn't biological, uh, you know. Even though we found footprints and then we're seeing they're eating meat and vegetables, uh, I think that they must be coming from the fourth dimension or something. That's the answer, mm-hmm. and I just think that's uh, baloney, and it's just uh, frustrated people that haven't been in the field too too long. Mm-hmm. I am so glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Thomas, I think you're on that. I think you're on that end of the bandwagon. Yes, yes. As far as I'm concerned, if it's not a zoological mystery, it's myth and folklore. One of the two. There are no other possibilities. But that's just me and my own stubbornness. Yeah, and I I think that if you look at the way Finding Bigfoot uh, developed over the Mm-hmm. The seasons uh, and it starts out very uh, down to earth, looking for evidence, going out, putting trail cams up and stuff. And before you know it, because they had to go to every state or every providence or something, they're they're talking about Bigfoot in uh, you know in Rhode Island or Delaware. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it just uh, it becomes the the social Bigfoot, the folkloric Bigfoot that they're really pursuing, and it's it's no longer. And I I feel the best Bigfoot evidence is from the Pacific Northwest, and the other uh, places are folklore or uh, copycat Bigfoot reports, and really there's not much there. So uh, that's too bad. Yes, I, I have to agree. I, I I helped the show of Finding Bigfoot with a couple episodes, and they admitted to me, these are the people behind the cameras. They said, our top priority is justifying another season, not finding a fastball. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And I, that's the I, whole thing of the TV shows. <laughs> I think the same thing is beginning to happen with exhibition, uh, exhibi- you know, Bigfoot uh yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that they're just drifting into you know more paranormal because they can't find uh, any evidence that they can throw a body at the feet of scientists or something. It's just uh, uh, and everybody wants to be uh, Oak Island or Skinwalker Ranch or whatever, and uh, it's, it make sends me right back to the books. Oh, yeah, so it's the same story with the Sasquatch field in general. A lot of, uh, this is only my opinion, but a lot of people who refer to themselves as researchers, they're more like religious leaders trying to push their faith rather than someone actually trying to find an answer. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, and that's just not the way to, to go about it. I'm I'm strictly old school, and uh, I always have been. My philosophy has been stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts, and I've never ever veered from that course. And I'm glad to hear, Lauren, that you basically have not either. No, no. I mean, I I listen to everybody, and I um, you know I certainly have enough. Uh, within my frame of reference to uh, be tolerant of people. But uh, uh, people come up to me in the museum and they say, you know, I was chasing uh, Bigfoot up a mountain and then the UFOs appeared and I decided I needed to take all my clothes off to attract the Bigfoot. (laughs) And I was like, okay, sir, I don't think I can talk about this anymore, especially in front of your children. (laughs) <laughs> Lord have mercy. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's that's out there, right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think too. A lot of a lot of times, folks uh, are seeking attention, and there seems to be this audience out there now that are just, you know, buying up this whole paranormal explanation, and um, you seem to get more hits. On the you know, on the TV uh, when you have something like that on there. I mean, it's just, honestly, you know, going out looking for Bigfoot is not all fun and games. You know, like they ninety nine point nine percent of the time you're not going to find a thing. No, no, nope. And uh, and most people don't know all of the hoots and howls that they're hearing in the woods. Maybe. Coyotes and owls, so they're making things up. You know, the true mm-hmm. believers are sometimes as dangerous as the uh, the debunkers. So we got to be careful of both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, so you got to watch out for the people mm-hmm. who just go around pretending to be Mulder and Scully. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. But I, listen, I wanted to make sure we got in the um, about your upcoming conference, Lauren. Sure. Uh, Well, uh, before the pandemic, we used to have annual uh, international cryptozoology conferences. And so our last one was in 2019, but uh, we've now put it off for a while because of the pandemic. But on May 19th and May 20th in Portland, Maine, uh, at a hotel that's right ne- near the museum, we're going to have the International Cryptozoology Conference uh, 2023, and that will be celebrating our 10th, I mean our 20th year uh, as a museum. Wow. And so we've already lined up um, quite a few speakers. We'll be announcing them more formally uh, during October and November. Uh, but we're actually going to make this a free event um, because uh, everybody doesn't have much money, and we're a nonprofit, so we're going to make sure that people can come to it. Uh, probably figure out some way to uh, about 3,000 people can come to the vendors, and then uh, we'll have about 300 people that can. Uh, uh, come into the two different uh, speaking rooms. Uh, 
And so we'll we'll figure out some way to do that. But spread out over two days, we're going to have some fun. And uh, we're usually pretty down to earth, uh, no woo woo, and uh, just uh, certainly uh, talk about some of these investigations that interest all of us. Not just Sasquatch, uh, all types of cryptological mm-hmm. subjects. Mm-hmm. Yes, all kinds of cryptozoological. A lot of cats, a lot of, uh, you know, new animals that may be discovered. But uh, since Bigfoot does get a lot of interest, we'll have some individuals. Uh, we'll have even somebody there talking about sea serpents off of Florida. So, Wow. That sounds great. Yeah, we'll have fun, and there'll be lots of souvenirs and lots of books, but uh, lots of authors that will be giving autographs. Uh, so uh, we don't know if we have anybody from British Columbia yet, but we'll maybe get somebody out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. Well, I would love to get down there one day and see your museum, Lauren. I've, I've heard so much about it. Uh, uh-huh. We've met at we've met at conferences before and had good conversations, honest conversations on the subject in general. And I got to admit, my, my my friend, I I respect what you've done. I respect the work you've done, and uh, I like what you've done. Well, thank you, thank you, Thomas. Well. I I try to keep track of where you're at and uh, get the latest on uh, Alberta and British Columbia because I think that's where it's happening. Still goes on, but i got to admit, 2022 has been rather slow this year compared to what I expected Mm -hmm. since since COVID is basically sort of dying down. People are getting out more. I have no idea if it's to do with all the forest fires we have in the last two years, but so far, report-wise, in 2022, there's only been a couple of incidents. Uh, one report of footprints where the lady was trying to get a hold of me, but she, I have not heard from her yet, so uh, I'm still waiting on that one. And the well, Ruby it may Creek- have been related to all of the wildfires, could have been uh, stirring up things and having people, uh, having the Sasquatch uh, move around a little mm-hmm. bit more than usual. Very possibly, very possibly. There could be a dozen expeditions. Or it could be that I'm going to hear about things people saw in 2022 and 2025. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That could be. Now, let me ask you this, Lauren. Are there supposed to be Bigfoot in Maine? Well, I've always felt that uh, the reports that we occasionally get seem to be interlopers, seem to be uh, uh, some of the Sasquatch coming from Quebec and from the Maritimes. There doesn't seem to be uh, a a population, what I think is a breeding population, in Maine. We have very, very old tales of Wendigo, which I see as Mm -hmm. nothing more than Eastern Bigfoot. But those are all really... Uh, 200 years old and and uh, different things. Now, one of those programs that we were just talking about came to the state of Maine and seemed to uh, focus all of their attention on Bradbury Mountain, which is uh, 
not as big as Mount Katahdin, but is closer to Portland. So it uh, gets a lot of reports of hikers that uh, feel that they are seeing Bigfoot. Uh, not hmm. sure what they're seeing, but it could be Bigfoot. It could be hearing different things. And and uh, that documentary show actually went there and, and felt that they had some of the best evidence that they uh, came across during all of their seasons. So that was mm-hmm. encouraging, but uh, uh, I'm really, um, I'm very dubious of, like I say, a breeding population. Much mm-hmm. more okay. about the the black panthers along the coastline and uh, deeper in the woods we have a lot of mystery cats that look like mountain lions coming back. Uh, Dr. Bruce S. Wright one of the best researchers, uh, the late Bruce Wright, he uh, found that there are quite a few cases in Newfoundland of uh, these mountain lions. And so that seems to be uh, something that is exciting. A lot of people that are cryptozoologists up here. And then there's the usual sea serpents and uh, mystery sharks and other things off the coast. So uh, there's a lot to do in Maine. Yeah, it's beautiful up there, especially in the fall. Yeah, it is, it is. But a lot of us up here really enjoy the summer. <laughs> because <laughs> whenever, whenever the winter comes, we're lucky yeah. if we get outside. <laughs> wow, I can imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thomas, is there anything else that you wanted to ask, Lauren? We're getting pretty close to yeah, the Yes, so just as running out of time now, I'd like to uh, get Lauren's opinion on what he thinks of the future of cryptology and what direction we're going in. And does he think we're going in uh, the right direction, or do you think we're spinning off and spinning our wheels? Well, I, I'm waiting to see how some of these young cryptozoologists, uh, what direction are they taking? A lot of the... Uh, business about uh, the paranormal and some of the books that are delving too so much into that because they're frustrated uh, is very discouraging because if you I'm online quite a bit and it's very discouraging to see how something like Wikipedia which is really a terrible terrible resource but actually one that students use all the time how all of the cryptozoological entries on Wikipedia have been invaded by skeptics and the entries have been rewritten from being open-minded in the middle of the road to debunking. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I really feel like there's a battle uh, between the evil debunkers and uh, open-minded cryptozoologists that's going to be fought out uh, for the mines of the young people, and so I I may not be around for that, but, well, one of the great things about the museum is that after 30 years of uh, of my son, my youngest son, Caleb, um, kind of going away from the field of cryptozoology, like all sons do, I mean, I'm not, never wanted him to follow in my footsteps, and he went into... Um, fiscal management and legal management and all kinds of other things. Uh, Just this last year, 
he came back to the fold as uh, as the uh, as the assistant director of the museum. Mm. Wow, that's fantastic. That's good to know. Yeah, so there is hope for the future. Wow. I certainly know that we appreciate what you do and everything that you've contributed. And, you know, I don't think there's many documentaries out there about cryptozoology that we don't see Lauren Coleman in. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate being on your program and you giving the time. I mean, two months in a row for the International Cryptozoology Museum. We really appreciate it because we sort of fight uh, for every little bit of uh, mention that we get as a non-profit that really mm-hmm. we don't have any uh, budget for publicity like some of these big museums. So it's, mm-hmm. it's great to uh, let people know that we're out here and they hope they come visit. Oh, absolutely. Um, and let me let our listeners know, again, I know I, I talked about it when Jean was on, but go to cryptozoologymuseum.com. Um, right there you can find out about the museum. There's different information there. They also have a store where you can purchase different things. Uh, you make a donation to support this ongoing um, you know, museum. And remember, it's the only international cryptozoology museum in the world. That's right. They have in Maine. So, you know, if if you have a little bit extra to spare, if you, you know, suggest maybe putting a little something in the donation thing, that would be fantastic. I know they would appreciate it. Thank you. That that is one of our distinctions is that we really uh, deal with every cryptid, and uh, you know, you can go find a lot of specialty museums about one crypt or another, but we try to be the umbrella organization that's uh, very interested in all the cryptids as well as all the people pursuing them. So it's uh, we try to be universal. Absolutely. And now you're open. Tell us what your hours are at the uh, first at the, the Portland store and then the or museum and then the Bangalore. The Portland Museum is uh, located at Thompson's Point in Portland, and it is open seven days a week from 10 a.m. to 6. Uh, And so up in Bangor, uh, we're open right now Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 11 to 6 o'clock. Next spring and summer, we'll probably expand the hours in Bangor, but... uh, it's much colder up there, and so we're kind of getting used to the whole notion that we're new. Uh, not that many people know about us, and so the uh-huh. staffing is is still low. But uh, the difference is uh, down in Portland, we're six, seven rooms, two stories. We have a very small admission. Up in Bangor, there's no admission charge. Okay, okay. Awesome. You, do, you get, uh, do you get enough uh, admission charge to cover the rent, Lauren? We do. Uh, we're being supported uh, by that and a few donations. Well, also, we have the bookstore and gift mm-hmm. shop. So uh, that is really supporting us. And we're, uh, we did get a loan, a small business loan, during the 
worst part of the pandemic, and so that's mm-hmm. uh, we're taking 30 years to pay it off. But uh, donations mm-hmm. help uh, to uh, work against that. But uh, the Portland Museum is definitely supporting the Bangor one, and then we're looking for the possibility in the future to expanding the uh, Bangor uh, footage, you know, space as well as staff. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, the horizon looks good before us, so we think uh, good days are ahead. That's fantastic. I just can't imagine a world without cryptozoology people. Now, come on. (laughs) What a boring place that would be. So, come on. Let's uh, show some support out there for the International Cryptozoology Museum and Get up there to Maine and uh, visit. I think you'd have a good time, everybody. All of our listeners, we appreciate your support. Yeah, we we certainly do. We we feel like uh, there's lots of people in the Pacific Northwest doing their their duty to support uh, Bigfoot and other uh, studies out there. We need to do it out here in New England, and so we're trying to balance out the the uh, the map. Great. Now, I promise, is there anything you want to... Well, we're a minute over time, so you better close her up. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, it's a fantastic show. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on, and uh, we look forward to hearing more about your upcoming conference. We'll be sure to, to get that out on our show as well. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thomas, you take care of yourself and Julie, too. Thank you. Great talking to you again, my friend. Okay. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. Well, Thomas, good show once more, and we'll be back again uh, next month with another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants, talking old-timers with Thomas Steenberg. Have a great night, Thomas. Thank you, dear, and hopefully it will be another old-timer who is older than me. (laughs) What a great show. Thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.